Episode 30 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 6.5, Nephite Western Campaign, Reconquest, Battle Analysis, Battle of Antipas's Fall. What we will discuss in this episode is one of the most popular battles in the Book of Mormon. This is the battle where we meet the 2,000 stripling warriors, or sons of Helaman. We hear the great declaration about the strength of a mother's testimony. We also see the real power that comes from faith in that testimony and the truth on which it is based. This is exciting stuff. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I begin with a quote from the Old Testament book of Joshua, chapter 8, verses 3 through 7. Quote, So Joshua arose and all the people of war to go up against Ai. And Joshua chose out thirty thousand men of valor and sent them away by night. And he commanded them, saying, Behold, ye shall lie in wait against the city, even behind the city. Go not very far from the city, but be ye all ready. And I and all the people that are with me will approach unto the city, and it shall come to pass, when they come out against us, as at the first, that we will flee before them, for they will come out after us, till we have drawn them from the city. For they will say, They flee before us, as at the first, therefore we will flee before them. Then ye shall rise up from the ambush, and seize upon the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand." Close quote. This simple story of a battle outside the city of Ai is an example of the very strategy that we will explore in this episode and in the following episode. In that battle at Ai, the children of Israel tricked the people of Ai to send their army outside the protected walls of their city to then be destroyed by the Israelites. This plan of attack is something that I call the bait and switch, a phrase that many listeners might be familiar with in a commercial context. The idea in war is to lure a force out of a strong position by presenting a weak opponent. Once the force comes out of its defensive positions, it is attacked by another, usually stronger, force. This happened at least twice in the Book of Mormon. In the battle that we are talking about in this episode, the Battle of Antipas's Fall, or the Battle of the 2000 Stripling Warriors, and in the Third Battle of Mulek, that we will discuss in the next episode. Overview of the Campaign Helaman tells us about this battle in a long state-of-the-theater letter that he wrote to Moroni in the 29th year of the reign of the judges. In that letter, he recounted the command experiences and decisions that he took while as commander of a subordinate army in the theater and then as the theater commander. His letter includes chapter 56, 57, and 58 of the Book of Alma in the Book of Mormon. The events that we will discuss in this episode are primarily found in Alma chapter 56 and occurred in the 27th year of the reign of the judges. It is worth reading or listening to that chapter before listening to this episode. I refer a great deal to the third battle of Mulek, which is found in Alma chapter 52 verses 21 to 40 and occurred in the 28th year of the reign of the judges. Both the Battle of Antipas's Fall and the Third Battle of Mulek featured the bait-and-switch tactic that was also a part of the Battle of Ai, fought by Joshua and the children of Israel. Chronologically, the Battle of Antipas's Fall was the first example of this technique in the Book of Mormon record, though we don't get the details of this battle until after we read the account of the Third Battle of Mulek a couple of chapters earlier. The primary idea in this strategy was to provide a bait force that was too good to resist. By definition, this must be a force that was perceived as incapable of destroying the opposing army, in this case, a Lamanite army. Once the Lamanite army took the bait and left their fortifications, then the overall Nephite commander would attack the Lamanite army with a larger pursuing force, thus a switch in main effort with the potential to destroy the Lamanite army. 
The control of these two elements was difficult, especially as we are talking about the ancient world when commanders did not possess modern communications. In the Battle of Antipas' fall, there were all of the standard complexities. The enemy did the unexpected. The bait force and switch force lost the ability to communicate with each other, and they could not adjust the plan in an orderly way. When one combines an understanding of this battle and the later Third Battle of Mulek, it is interesting that Moroni seemed to have learned from the events associated with Antipas and Helaman. I will make an effort to emphasize these learning points within the record, as the very process of learning from one battle to the next is instructive for us as we learn from one experience to the next. In the Third Battle of Mulek, which we discuss in detail next episode, it is much easier to identify the brilliance of Moroni's plan and the challenges in the plan of Antipas that we will discuss as we go. Moroni had his bait force move toward a safe haven, which was the city of Bountiful, where there was not going to be a question of their ultimate safety. Moroni also had a blocking force identified to shield the bait force and deter the opponent. Finally, Moroni planned to surround the enemy with all of his possible force to destroy the opposing commander's will or his army. Antipas did not have all or even most or any of these benefits, as we will see. Helaman too commanded the bait force, and his army moved into the wilderness and not towards Zarahemla or another large city. There was no blocking force. Antipas did not take the city of Antipara, and the plan did not call for the surrounding of the Lamanites. Antipas's army was expected to chase down the Lamanite army all by itself. Even with the benefits of Moroni's effective planning, Moroni at Mulek was still hard-pressed to conclude the battle in a favorable way. Battles are not easy, and the enemy always has a vote. What we see in the Battle of Antipas's fall is a commander in need of a win to stop the enemy's momentum. There is a broad problem of trust within and among the Nephites at this period. I want to express why that was so, and why this battle might have played out as it did. I expect that Antipas was concerned with the loyalty of commanders and portions of his army. We discussed last episode that some or all of the four cities in the west were lost to the Lamanites through a form of subterfuge and subversion from within the communities of Nephites living in those cities. Those four cities were Manti, Zeezrom, Kumani, and Antipara. Moroni was still fighting the kingmen somewhere in the vicinity of Zarahemla and the core cities of the land of Zarahemla at this point. There were spies or enemy sympathizers seemingly everywhere. Helaman, too, on the other hand, had to have been viewed as a trustworthy commander. He was the son of Almatu, and he was the current religious leader for those called Christians. There was no way that he or the army that he commanded could be susceptible for Lamanite subversion or possible dissension. Antipas, and then later Helaman too, sought to regain the lands and cities lost to the Lamanites with the limited resources each man had. The Battle of Antipas's fall is the first step in achieving that purpose. Geographical Setting Location I want to begin by locating this battle on the calendar. Helaman too says that this battle takes place on the first through the third days of the seventh month of the calendar year, which is assumed to be the 27th year of the reign of the judges. I will regularly refer to that month as July for connection to our current calendar. However, I do recognize that the Nephite and our current calendars may not have been synchronized at all, and the months may not have been common. There is some significant geographical information within this battle narrative. The theater commander was located in the city of Judea, which seems to have been southwest of the city of Zarahemla. Helaman II led his army from the city of Judea to a city by the west seashore. The route to the seashore took them close to the Lamanite-controlled city of Antipara. Once the Lamanite army came out of Antipara in pursuit of Helaman II and his army, Helaman II turned his army to the north, and they marched away from the pursuing Lamanites in that direction. 
the area through which Helaman II marched to the north of Antipara provided observations sufficient for the three forces of Helaman II, the Lamanites, and Antipas to see each other, or spies from those forces to see forces behind them and make regular communication on progress to their respective commanders. Additionally, this was an area where it was possible for armies to turn right or left, and by so doing, make it possible for a pursuing army to close the distance on their fleeing prey. That means for some miles, the land was more open than heavily wooded wilderness. Then, Helaman II and his army entered a wilderness where the armies had reduced visibility on the pursuing forces, though this wilderness seemed to also have some movement options. In general, there was a path leading from Judea to the western sea that ran along the north of Antipara. North of this trail was a plain of some significance, tens of miles, as the armies marched for hours. North of this plain was a wilderness area, also tens of miles or more in size. Throughout the wilderness area, there were numerous trails that afforded the opportunity to turn right, left, or continue straight. Terrain slash vegetation. There are some assumptions of vegetation that can be drawn from this story. First, the plain where the armies moved for most of day one, or one July, probably had some low grass or grass-like vegetation. The wilderness that Helaman II's army entered on 2 July was probably a wilderness of trees and significant undergrowth. The battle itself occurred in this wilderness, and vegetation had to play some role in the confusion of all armies engaged in the fighting. I sort of assume and depict the primary battlefield as being in a clearing of sorts within the wilderness, such that armies could form or function in some level of mass. Who was involved? Nephite forces. The Nephites had two separate forces involved in the battle, commanded by Helaman II and Antipas. The total Nephite force in this theater was 10,000 warriors, as we are told in Alma 56:28. Given what is known of the size of Helaman II's army, it is possible to make some relatively accurate estimates of all of the Nephite forces involved in this battle. Helaman II commanded the decoy or bait force with an army of 2,000, which is well described in Alma 5316 16-22. Antipas split his forces and left some to defend Judea, and took the rest with him, assuming that he left a force of about 2,000 in the city of Judea, a reasonable-sized defensive force for defending a fortified city against even a major attack, Antipas would have taken about 6,000 with him. This number is an estimate based on the known information provided. Despite the size, Antipas believed that he had a sufficient force to either drive off, defeat, or destroy the Lamanite army. In many ways, the strategy of this battle was simple. Dangle out Helaman II's army, have them be pursued by the Lamanite army, and then chase the Lamanite army down by a larger force and bring them to battle. Despite this apparent simplicity, it is critical to appreciate the complexity of all ancient battles without modern communications. Antipas and Helaman II were separated by several hours. There was no way to communicate to each other, and each commander could only trust that the other would fulfill his part of the plan, and possibly more. A key point about this battle is the use of spies. I will address their use in the technical context section of this episode. Here, it is important to point out that Antipas had spies present throughout the area. He knew the existence of an enemy army in Antipara, and one that would probably seek to fight Helaman II's army. Antipas had spies watching so that they could inform him that the Lamanite army was committed to fight Helaman II. Antipas may have also had spies watching the Lamanite spies so that he would be informed once those spies reported back to Antipara on Helaman II's army. Lamanite Forces the Lamanite force was clearly superior to the Nephites at the time of Helaman II's arrival with his army of 2,000 at the city of Judea. The largest Lamanite army in the western theater was in the city of Antipara. 
This reality was the same as the pattern followed in the Eastern Theater, where the Lamanite army attacked with a large force and left a garrison in each city it captured, and the last city in the sequence was where the remainder of the forces stayed. The Lamanite army remained at Antipara as Antipas was named commander, and as the Nephites slowly built an army of response based at Judea. It is unclear where Amaron was located during the buildup of Nephite forces. He may have been at Antipara, or he may have been further south at Manti, where he was better positioned to control events both in the east and in the west. Or he may have remained in the city of Nephi, where he was consolidating his authority over the Lamanites. Clearly, he was in command and had direct control of the events taking place in the west as we will see when Helaman II will later conduct prisoner exchange negotiations. This was different than in the Eastern Theater, where Jacob II was making the decisions. We do not know the size of the Lamanite armies or garrisons in the West. We do have some references to comparative sizes, but no Lamanite numbers are given. However, the data we do have on Nephite force size makes it possible to get a general scope of size for the Lamanite army as part of this story. It is important to remember that the Lamanite army in the east had enjoyed the first significant victories over the Nephites in the Nephite lands. It is probable that as Amaron raised another army, he had little real difficulty to raise another as big as the earlier army that marched toward Bountiful in the east, possibly between 12,000 and 25,000. I suppose that the same general attrition had to have faced the Lamanite army in the west as was experienced in the east. If anything, the attrition would have been higher as the Lamanite army fighting in the west was recently raised and almost immediately thrown into combat. Following this reasoning, it is possible that the Lamanite army at Antipara could have been anywhere between 7,500 and 16,000 warriors. Spies were as important for the Lamanites as the Nephites in this battle. The Lamanites knew of the reinforcements coming into Antipara, and they were aware of the movement of armies. They used spies to assist in the surprise or ambush of armies. Spies were essential to the functioning of both armies in this theater. It is also worth remembering that success in the Western theater began with the subversion of Nephite civic leaders or influential families in the cities. These same people and their family members and associates probably continued to assist Lamanite leaders and armies at this point in the story as well. Key leaders in the battle, Nephite forces, Antipas, Nephite army commander of the Western theater. We are told in Alma 56.9 that Antipas was placed in command by Moroni. Other than this information, there is little we know of him. As I have said with respect to Lehi too, there seemed to be a practice of placing commanders in charge of areas where they had some connection. Based on this thinking, it is possible that Antipas and his family came either from one of the cities that was lost to the Lamanite offensive or another of the cities in the Western Theater. For example, his hometown might have been the city of Judea. Helaman II, Nephite Army Commander Helaman II was the son of Almatu, and as we are told in Alma 31.7, had remained in the land of Zarahemla during the missionary journey led by Almatu to the land of Antionum and the people called Zoramites, as we discussed in episode 9 or part 2.3 of the podcast series. Like his father, he became the record keeper and high priest among the Nephites, He later lived among the people of Ammon, and as he did so, he was instrumental in encouraging those who had entered their covenant of nonviolence to maintain that covenant, as stated in Alma 53.14. The love of the people of Ammon was such that they chose him to be the man to command their sons as they were going into battle. Lamanite Forces No specific commanders are mentioned. Ammon played a significant role but probably not as a battlefield leader. He performed the higher functions of a ruler and negotiator. He was the person who made the decisions on priorities and targets. Grand and Theater Strategy Context As we discussed in episode 29, it is unclear in the Book of Mormon if there was one or two campaigns conducted by Amaron in the West. If there were two campaigns, then Moroni led the first defensive effort. 
After he left the theater in the hands of Antipas, another Lamanite offensive campaign was launched. In this scenario, the Nephites were prepared when the Lamanites initially attacked, but they failed to stop them as a result of the intrigues within the cities. The success of the Lamanites built until they captured four cities. For the most part, I think that the record is describing a single campaign with a variety of elements combined. In this version, the Lamanites used intrigue to weaken cities from within, and they also assaulted and captured cities with great loss on both sides. Senior, Nephite, tribal, and military leaders were taken captive for possible use in obtaining some sort of negotiation or ransom, and the Lamanite army continued to make a series of aggressive attacks against the remaining Nephite cities, such that Helaman II says that the Nephites at Judea fought by day and toiled by night, which makes me think that they were forced to strengthen defenses at night as they repelled attacks during the day. Helaman II's arrival coincided with a dangerous time for Nephite morale. He says in Alma 56, 15-16, that the Nephites expected an attack at any time, and in Alma 56, 22-23, we are told of Nephite cities to the north of Judea that did not have sufficient strength to resist a Lamanite attack. I suppose the Judea sat at a sort of crossroads which allowed Antipas to defend the region and react to large movements of the Lamanites. By the end of the 26th year of the reign of the judges and throughout the 27th year of the reign of the judges, the Nephites probably possessed the ability to defeat the Lamanite armies in an open field encounter or if the Lamanites were to attack Judea. The Lamanite commander at Antiparo seemed to be unwilling to fight in such a manner, and thus the need for the bait-and-switch stratagem. The arrival of Helaman II's army seemed to have changed the balance of power in the area, and Amron did not press what Helaman II saw as the Lamanite advantage, and the Nephite theater commander, Antipas, saw an opportunity to take the initiative. Like in other cases, when the Nephites were at a numerical disadvantage, they sought to use a stratagem to overcome the odds. With the reinforcements and new provisions that took his numbers to 10,000 warriors, Antipas believed that the Nephites could regain Antipara. It seems to me that the Nephites did not necessarily have a simple numerical advantage, but when combined with the stratagem, Antipas believed that he would have sufficient advantage to win. The reactions of the Lamanites played in Antipas's favor, as they were reacting strongly to the arrival of reinforcements. They made attempts to stop the arrival of provisions and new forces as well, as they were growing uneasy, as we are told in Alma 56, 29, and 30. Operational Context Antipas's intent was to lure the Lamanite army out of its stronghold and then to bring it to battle and defeat it. Antipas planned to have two forces, a bait force and a defeating force. The weakness of Antipas's plan was that he had no logical stopping feature, no place where his bait force could flee to safety and make the Lamanite army return. We will see Moroni adjust this plan in our next episode at the Third Battle of Mulek. Before too much criticism is heaped on Antipas, we have to remember that we do not know the terrain in this area. Maybe it was not possible to lure the Lamanite army out and then head toward a major Nephite city with a sufficient army to participate in the battle. It is also worth noting that Moroni possibly learned from Antipas for future battles, whereas Antipas may have been breaking new ground with his strategy. It is also possible that the Third Battle of Mulek happened first, but the transference of lessons learned on the ancient battlefield was poor to non-existent. Regardless of whether Antipas had limited geographical options or he simply did not consider the flaw in the plan, there was a significant flaw nonetheless. Helaman II's army was to march as if they were taking provisions to another city and therefore present an emotional target as well as a military one. If the Lamanites were concerned by Nephite reprovisioning, here was an ideal opportunity to stop it. The bait force would lead the Lamanites out of the city, and then Antipas would pursue them, surprise them, and defeat them. It was clear that Antipas did not intend for Helaman II and his army to fight. Technical Context 
There are three technical aspects worthy of comment in this battle. The first was the use of spies. Spies were not simply used by the commanders, but Antipas specifically planned for the reporting of spies to the Lamanite commander, as stated in Alma 56.35. Antipas delayed his march until the Lamanite army was committed to the pursuit of Helaman II. This meant that Antipas needed to know about the Lamanite spies and know when they reported his position and also have his own spies inform him of the departure and movement of the Lamanite army from the city of Antipara. It was essential that Antipas know when the Lamanites committed to the pursuit so that he could react. It is probable that the Lamanite spies prevented Antipas from doing what Moroni did at Mulek, which was prepositioning his force close by the city, in this case Antipara, prior to the battle. Spies were ubiquitous. It is important to understand that this was a chain of spies, or spies watching and waiting for action from the spies of the other side. For example, Antipas had spies watching the Lamanites such that he knew the location and strength of the Lamanite army in Antipara. Antipas was also confident that he would know about the movement of the Lamanite army once it began the pursuit of Helaman. However, the Lamanites also had spies watching the Nephites, and therefore Antipas had to wait until his ideal conditions were met, meaning that the army of Antipara had committed to pursuing Helaman too, such that it wouldn't return to Antipara once it knew that Antipas was moving against it. Antipas could not move before he knew that the chase was on. His choices were all linked to spies, either the actions of his spies reporting the commitment of the army at Antipara or the departure of all of the Lamanite spies around the city of Judea to report the movement of Helaman II, and therefore allow Antipas to move without his movement being known. The second technical aspect is a simple issue of time and space. This is a point that I discussed in episode 29 and other episodes before, and that we will discuss in the future. It is an important point that is often missed when discussing ancient and sometimes contemporary battles. We know that Helaman II had an army of 2,000, and for the sake of this discussion have assumed the size of the Lamanite and Nephite armies to be in the neighborhood of six to 8,000 or more. The roads used by the armies of this time and in the area were not two-laned paved structures, but were probably trails going through the wilderness. It is possible that there was a network of trails that would allow a force to divide and yet maintain parallel routes for miles. However, the primitive nature of the paths used is important in appreciating the length of the various forces and the time necessary to cover a given point for the entire army. If the army of Helaman II was able to march two abreast on their path and each man took up a meter of linear space, then his army was more than a kilometer long. That is more than half a mile. If the army was moving while pursued at about four to five miles an hour, which is not unreasonable given the fact that they were being pursued by a large army, then the army of Helaman II would cross a given point in the trail in about seven minutes. That means it took about seven minutes from the time the first man crossed that point until the last man crossed it. If the army was less disciplined and more spread out, then the time was longer. These details are important when appreciating the time necessary to bring an entire army to bear in a battle under these kinds of movement conditions. The Lamanite army of Antipara may have been as large as 16,000. This would mean that the force could be as much as 5 miles or 8 kilometers long if moving on two single file routes at 1 meter intervals. It would take this army more than an hour to cross a given point. All of these figures assume a disciplined formation and a standard interval between warriors. A less disciplined force would bunch up and spread out at various intervals, making the total length of any given column anywhere from 75% to 200% of the distances and times suggested. The third technical point is that of fronts and rears of armies. Here, it is important to see the Lamanites as fighting in a mass formation. 
they generally faced the same way and focused on simple commands for attack and defend. The one-two punch that the Lamanites suffered in this battle where they get attacked in the rear, first by Helaman II and his 2,000, and then by the remnants of the army of Antipas, can only be appreciated when the mass formation concept is understood. The Lamanites focused on a single objective at a time. It is clear from the entirety of the pre-Christ Book of Mormon record that the Lamanites did not maneuver subordinate units. They used the army like an arrow. They aimed it and released it and then lost the ability to control it tactical events. The details of the primary battle are somewhat sketchy in that Helaman II and his army did not arrive at the actual engagement until after the army of Antipas had been defeated. That said, we do know the following about the tactical events. This battle began with a chase. The army of Helaman II departed from Judea and marched as if they were escorting supplies for an unnamed city by the sea. The Lamanite army in the city of Antipara came out to pursue them, as we are told in Alma 56.35. Once Antipas became aware of Helaman II's army being close to the city of Antipara, and he could safely assume that the Lamanites would take the bait, or when he knew of the Lamanite army's commitment to the chase, then he marched forth and began his pursuit of the pursuing Lamanite army. It is interesting that we are told this detail two verses before we are told the detail that the Lamanites came after Helaman II and his army, Alma 56.33. Helaman II and his army began to flee to the north once they knew they were being pursued. This flight lasted for one entire day and two partial days, meaning a part of the first day and the third and a full second day. The distance traveled in this flight had to have been significant. I suppose that Helaman II covered at least 80 miles, or about 128 kilometers in that period. This number assumes an average traveling speed of 4 miles per hour, which is reasonable if fleeing from a pursuing army. It also assumes that the armies traveled for 6 hours on day 1, 12 hours on day 2, and 2 to 3 hours on day 3. The armies were able to see each other as this flight continued throughout the first day and in the beginning of the second. The ability to see the opponent caused the Lamanite army to speed up and drove the intense efforts of this entire battle as expressed in Alma 56, 36-38. Helaman II's army entered the wilderness during the second day and they marched all day from sunrise to sunset. The armies continued the chase on the third day until Helaman II reported that the Lamanite army was no longer following them. Helaman II halted his army, and they held a council to decide what to do. The young men encouraged their leader to return and fight the Lamanites as expressed in Alma 5646, which I will quote in the discussion on battlefield leadership. I ask you to remember the discussion on distances. The Lamanite army could have been anywhere from two and a half to five miles, or 4,000 to 8,000 meters long. As such, the initial engagements between Antipas and the Lamanite army would have been between small groups of Nephite warriors who raced ahead to fight those elements of the Lamanite army that were lagging behind. Such fighting would have started with individual and very small group battles, and would have escalated as Lamanite commanders were forced to stop larger groups and organize into a more overwhelming force. This process would have eventually forced the senior Lamanite commander to order a halt and a full-scale battle. This change from small engagements to a full battle may have also happened as a collective movement toward protection of the rear slowly moved through the Lamanite army. But such a progressive social decision would have required lots of time and resulted in significant Lamanite losses before their full weight could be marshaled and brought to bear. The dynamic of size and dispersion in this fight is important to an understanding of how the battle may have actually progressed in its early stages. The army of Antipas was weary from a long march where they outpaced their opponents. One could expect that the battle that followed the concentration of the Lamanite force was fierce, as tired and frustrated warriors expressed their frustration and rage in a fit of killing frenzy. Antipas was either equally matched with the Lamanite army, or, in the worst case, outnumbered by as much as two to one. 
The concentration of the Lamanite army combined with the exhaustion of the chasing Nephites led to a defeat for Antipas in this major engagement, and it cost the Nephite commander his life. The core of the engagement is expressed in Alma 56, verses 49 to 54. Quote, And it came to pass that I did return with my two thousand against these Lamanites who had pursued us. And now behold, the armies of Antipas had overtaken them, and a terrible battle had commenced. The army of Antipas being weary because of their long march in so short a space of time, were about to fall into the hands of the Lamanites, and had I not returned with my two thousand, they would have obtained their purpose. For Antipas had fallen by the sword, and many of his leaders, because of their weariness, which was occasioned by the speed of their march. Therefore the men of Antipas, being confused because of the fall of their leaders, began to give way before the Lamanites. And it came to pass that the Lamanites took courage and began to pursue them, and thus were the Lamanites pursuing them with great vigor when Helaman came upon their rear with his two thousand and began to slay them exceedingly, insomuch that the whole army of the Lamanites halted and turned upon Helaman. Now when the people of Antipas saw that the Lamanites had turned them about, they gathered together their men and came again upon the rear of the Lamanites. And now it came to pass that we, the people of Nephi, the people of Antipas, and I with my two thousand, did surround the Lamanites and did slay them, yea, insomuch that they were compelled to deliver up their weapons of war, and also themselves as prisoners of war. Close quote. When Helaman too and his army arrived, Antipas was dead, and his army was beginning to be defeated and beginning to break. Helaman too sent his army into the Lamanite rear, as the Lamanites were facing the disorganized and breaking army of Antipas. The vigor and intensity of Helaman II's attack caused the entire Lamanite army to turn and face Helaman II's force. Once the Lamanite army turned away from pursuit of the army of Antipas and faced Helaman II, the army of Antipas was reorganized, and they then attacked the new rear of the Lamanite army. This subsequent attack allowed the Nephites to surround the Lamanite army and over time compelled the Lamanites to surrender. I will post sketches of the battle on Facebook to help in visualization. Battlefield Leadership I want to address four critical leadership decisions in this section. The first decision of note was the one made by Antipas to conduct this deception and draw out the Lamanite army in the first place. This decision was clearly effective. He was able to get the Lamanites out of Antipara and destroy the army. The problem in his decisions stemmed from a lack of understanding of the terrain and how he could catch the Lamanites without having to outrun them on the march. My criticism of Antipas is done entirely in ignorance of the domination of Lamanite spies. It is quite probable that Antipas was truly caught on the horns of a dilemma. Either he could risk the Lamanite spies seeing the movement of his army from Judea and thereby threaten the ability of Helaman II to entice the Lamanites out of Antipara, or he could run the risk he did of wearing his army out before it could catch the Lamanite army in pursuit of Helaman II. Whether he made the best decision or not, it was clearly the decision to wait until Helaman II had the hook completely set before moving out that cost Antipas his life. The second decision that mattered was for Antipas to move his army faster and more aggressively so that they caught the Lamanite army on the morning of the third day. By doing that, the fighting between Antipas and his army and the Lamanite army was done in relatively close proximity to Helaman II and his army, so that when Helaman II turned his force around and attacked the Lamanites, both of the Nephite armies were able to work together and defeat the Lamanites. One might argue that this was less a decision than happenstance. There is truth in such a statement. However, it was a command decision to speed up, even though Antipas may not have known what to expect would come from such a decision. The third critical decision was made by Helaman II. His decision to turn his army around and search for and then fight the Lamanite army was a courageous one, which he explained in wonderful detail to Moroni. This was clearly a dangerous and potentially destructive decision. It resulted in the victory they achieved. This decision is often discussed in classes, but I want to emphasize here what it was that the sons of Helaman II were offering to do. I want to read from Helaman II's letter, as recorded in Alma, chapter 56, verses 43 to 48. Quote, And now, 
Whether they were overtaken by Antipas, we knew not. But I said unto my men, Behold, we know not, but they have halted for the purpose that we should come against them, that they might catch us in their snare. Therefore, what say ye, my sons, will ye go against them to battle? And now I say unto you, my beloved brother Moroni, that never had I seen so great courage, nay, not amongst all the Nephites. For as I had ever called them my sons, for they were all of them very young, even so they said unto me, Father, behold, our God is with us, and he will not suffer that we should fall. Then let us go forth. We would not slay our brethren if they would let us alone. Therefore let us go, lest they should overpower the army of Antipas. Now they never had fought, yet they did not fear death, and they did think more upon the liberty of their fathers than they did upon their lives. Yea, they had been taught by their mothers that if they did not doubt, God would deliver them. And they rehearsed unto me the words of their mothers, saying, We do not doubt our mothers knew it. Close quote. As far as they knew, they might have marched off to face as many as 16,000 combat-experienced Lamanite warriors all by themselves. That would have been a one-on-eight disadvantage. Think about that. They did not know that Antipas was fighting. This was truly a courageous decision on the part of all who made it. The final decision of importance was that of the remaining subordinate commanders of the army of Antipas to reconsolidate and turn their army back around and attack the Lamanites yet again. This is a tremendously difficult task to execute. Typically, once an army broke and began the process of retreating on the ancient battlefield, there was little that a commander could do to turn it back around. This would especially be true if the commander was dead and a subordinate was now seeking to turn the army around. The battle under discussion presents a very clear example of the power of Moroni's preaching earlier during the Title of Liberty episode. The Nephites truly seemed to be fighting for ideals and concepts that were far above the individual. The Lamanites present an interesting picture. They were surrounded by what seemed to be an equal or inferior force, and yet they surrendered while still having significant numbers of warriors capable of fighting. The psychological shock of being repeatedly attacked in the rear had to have created an overwhelming sense of defeat and of fighting an innumerable and inexhaustible enemy. They were shattered by this series of attacks. Significance The defeat of the army at Antipara led to a rapid capitulation of the city as Amaron withdrew his remaining warriors to reinforce other cities, as we are told in Alma 57.4. Amron initially attempted to negotiate an exchange of Antipara for prisoners, but Helaman II refused this option and offered a counterproposal for an exchange of prisoners. Amron refused the counterproposal and instead withdrew his people from Antipara. A result of this battle was that Helaman II became the theater commander for the Nephites. There is no comment on discussion about who should replace Antipas. The letter simply states that Helaman II began giving orders and conducting negotiations. This may have been a result of all the senior leaders in Antipas's army being killed and leaving Helaman II as the senior Nephite general. Or maybe it was clear that Helaman II was the second most senior leader before the battle began. We just don't know. I think that it was the former and that Helaman II was the most senior commander left once the casualties were identified. This battle and its aftermath are a clear demonstration of the descending options of the Lamanites. No longer were the Lamanites the ones frightening the Nephites and causing the Nephites to say, somewhat protected within fortifications, that they had to repair every night. Now the Lamanites were fighting battles of reinforcement delay, and attrition. The Nephites were completely on the ascendancy. There were some very challenging battles yet to be fought, and it was clear from Helaman II's words at the time that he did not see the inevitability of Nephite success. But looking back, the defeat of this largest Lamanite army in the theater and the loss of so many warriors was something Amaron could not overcome. Lessons Learned Military History the lessons from this operationally detailed battle are primarily centered on issues of preparation 
and movement and on the challenge of fighting with a single mass formation. Identification. Spies have been important throughout this record, but in this battle and the preparations preceding it, there are tremendous implications of the benefits and control offered by having a comprehensive spy network. Amron shaped what could and could not happen by ensuring that he could see all or nearly all that transpired. This may be why such a high percentage of the forces at Antiparo were able to march forth. There was confidence in their knowledge. What Amron missed was the ability to see the mind of his opposing commander. He did not demonstrate knowledge of what Antipas intended, and ultimately this proved his undoing. Isolation All three of the forces involved in this battle isolated themselves. Helaman too, by the very nature of the plan, was on his own until the Lamanite army was brought to battle. The Lamanite army was isolated as soon as Antipas began his pursuit, and they were forced into the dilemma of either destroying each Nephite army in turn or fighting their way back to Antipara. Antipas was the only commander who had the option of a return to his base without conflict, though the growing distance from that location as the chase progressed made it more and more difficult to accomplish this task. Suppression Neither side had the ability to maneuver. Antipas suffered as his warriors were exhausted and the ability to maneuver was completely withdrawn from them. The Nephites isolated the Lamanite army through the ability to surround them. There was also the limitation of Lamanite maneuver through their primary means of large-scale engagement, single mass formation. Maneuver At the operational level, Antipas was able to conduct some maneuver by having a force in front of and behind his opponent. The actual use of the two forces in tandem was neither planned nor anticipated. It seemed that the Lamanites did not, as a general rule, conduct maneuver at the tactical level. Destruction The Lamanites were destroyed as an army by the emotional shock inflicted on them by the repeated attacks upon the rear of their formation. The combination of repetition in the attacks and the fact that they were surrounded led to a complete surrender of will before the physical surrender occurred. Lessons learned, spiritual. What is to be learned from the details of this campaign? I hope that the following lessons are useful. I want to emphasize that these are some lessons that I have derived, and they are not a comprehensive list of all possible lessons, or even the most applicable for you in your life as you listen to this. 1. Power in Faith and Testimony The sons of Helaman II were invincible on the battlefield. This was a direct result of the power granted them through their faith and testimony. Mormon, as well as Helaman II, made this very clear. It is important to understand that faith has a real impact on our ability to function in the physical world. It is not simply a spiritually beneficial trait. I want to say that again, but in a different way. This story teaches us that faith provides real strength and real power in a real world. The young men in this army were not killed and never defeated. I believe that this is why their story is included in the Book of Mormon. Mormon wants us to understand the power that comes from believing and living your covenants. 2. Reconsolidate and re-engage The successors of Antipas did an excellent job of turning a broken army around and re-entering the fight. This is so very difficult, and it rarely gets the emphasis it deserves. Mormon emphasized through this the importance of repentance in our personal battles with Satan. Even though we may have been defeated and sinned, we can stop our flight, repent, and once again enter the battle, and this time to our ultimate success. The imagery of victory through faith and repentance in this battle is powerful. 3. Surround the enemy. Mormon also provided great imagery of a surrounded and confused enemy who had been engaged repeatedly from multiple directions. In many ways, this is the goal of church councils, to bring together the full resources of the various quorums and organizations of the church against a common opponent from each appropriate angle and group's focus. Correlation is designed to force Satan to fight in multiple directions. Mormon's metaphor. How does this battle support it? 
I should have been talking about this all along. I have said that Mormon's metaphor places emphasis on preparation, covenants, and unity. I need to come back to this in an explicit way at each opportunity as I plan to do from now on. Preparation The preparation in this story began with a discussion on knowledge and how important it was then and is for us to see the area of conflict and to see the efforts of the opponents to also see us and our actions. We are being watched by both heavenly and earthly observers. We need to take the time to listen to those who see the full picture. By that, I mean prophets. There is also a powerful lesson on the benefit of working from a plan. Strength alone will not provide victory. There is a great need to plan for victory and then to be willing to work even harder than expected to achieve it. Covenants. There are several powerful references and inferences to covenants throughout this story. First, the sons of Helaman II are really a personification of covenants, as they are the products of the powerful covenant entered into by their parents, as discussed in detail in episode 19 or part 4.4 of this podcast series. Second, there is the implication of a covenant of upholding the plan between Helaman II and Antipas. Antipas pushed his warriors to move faster so that they might fulfill their part of the covenant to bring the Lamanites to battle. Helaman too and his sons turned about and attacked the Lamanites out of a desire to honor their part of the covenant and to distract the Lamanites from Antipas. Finally, the army of Antipas was probably called back to fight through a reminder of their agreed responsibility to fight and defeat the Lamanites. All of these decisions could be said to be based on covenants. This was one of the most covenant-driven battles in the entire record. Unity Once again, Mormon gives a battle where unity of purpose supersedes physical unity. There is a recurrent theme of a reminder of the unity of action and purpose necessary for Nephite victory in this plan and battle. The Lamanites are ultimately defeated as the Nephites physically unify in surrounding them on the battlefield, and they are overwhelmed by the shock of it all. Conclusion The Battle of Antipas' Fall was the first step of Nephite domination of the Western theater of war between the Nephites and Lamanites. From this point forward, there was constant and steady Nephite progress toward the removal of all Lamanite forces from Nephite lands. The ability of Nephite subordinate commanders, particularly Helaman too, to understand the intent and communicate this same intent to his soldiers allowed for the victory. Helaman II's young men knew and agreed with the reasons for the fighting and also understood their role in the battle in concert with Antipas. They collectively made and agreed to a decision to risk their lives in the support of the plan and to assist their comrades in defending the Nephite liberties. This is a level of individual and collective commitment that is uncommon in ancient warfare. The next episode provides a detailed discussion on the Eastern Theater version of the bait and switch. In that episode, we will see Moroni's reappearance in war after the defeat of the Kingmen, and we will discuss both what I label to be the second and third battles of Mulek. The third battle of Mulek provides an additional level of complexity to our discussion. I think that you will find it as interesting a discussion as was this one. I recommend that you read ahead and refer to Alma chapter 52 verses 15 to 40. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.